Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is journalist Teddy Jameson, and we are discussing his memoir, Whose Side Are You On? Sport, the Troubles, and Me, published by Yellow Jersey Press in September 2011. In the three decades of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, from 1969 to the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, some 3,500 people were killed in the sectarian violence, more than half of these civilians. Daily life in the province was punctuated by checkpoints, roadblocks, and a constant military presence. Yet, amidst the bomb attacks and shootings and security sweeps and chronic unemployment, there was something like normal life in Northern Ireland. People did find work, children went to school, and there were games and sports. In fact, as Teddy Jameson explains in his book and our interview, sports were an important part of life during the Troubles. For some, they were a needed outlet from the tensions and violence while for others, sports were a way to emphasize the divisions between Catholic and Protestant, Republican and Loyalist. We learned that there were players who were targeted because of which side they were on, while there were a few athletes, just a few, who rose above the sectarian divide and gained the support of all Northern Irish. I learned a lot from reading Teddy's book and talking with him about it. But what I gained from him was not just a new understanding of life and sports in Northern Ireland of the 70s and 80s. Teddy's discovery of his own irrepressible allegiance to Northern Irish sports, something that has continued in the decades since he left the province, will be familiar to anyone who has moved away from their homeland yet still feels a spontaneous spark of connection while watching the old home team take the field. The loyalties and emotional attachments of sports fans run deep, and as I learned from Teddy's book, our migrations tend to strengthen these attachments rather than diminish them. I enjoyed my visit with Teddy, and I think you'll appreciate our interview. On the line today from Glasgow, my guest is Teddy Jameson. Teddy, thank you for joining me on New Books and Sports. It's a pleasure. So we typically begin these interviews by asking the author to give an introduction and explain his background, but since your book is a memoir, most of the program is going to be devoted to discussing your background. So instead, I'll ask you to say a few words about the work you're doing now as a writer, and what led you to write this book? Well, I'm a journalist. Uh, That's my day job. I I write for a newspaper in Glasgow called The Herald. used to be The Glasgow Herald, now The Herald. And I tend to be a features writer, magazine writer. I'll do uh, reportage, uh, celebrity interviews, uh, across the board, really. And then what led you to write the book? Well, Because this is your first book, correct? It is my first book, yes, rather late in life, I suppose, in my late 40s. Um, 
the book started, it, the short story or the long story is it started with an obituary, in fact. Um, three years ago, I, I read in a London newspaper an obituary of a, a motorbike uh, rider called Robert Dunlop. Uh, Robert Dunlop was killed in a road race in Northern Ireland uh, in a practice session, in fact, before the race. Um, and two, two things kind of um, attracted my attention. Firstly, the name Dunlop's a very famous one in Northern Ireland. Um, Robert was a, a successful uh, motorbike rider. His sons, in fact, Michael and William, are both uh, both compete. And his brother Joey is is one of the kind of most famous Northern Irish sporting figures. Perhaps not so well known outside uh, the north, but uh, in the north, a huge figure. Uh, he was five times world champion, in, in fact, in motorcycling, and a big figure in the eighties and nineties. And um, so I was aware of of the name and uh, the race in which he was killed at the practice session when she was killed uh, the Northwest 200 actually takes place in, in the town in which I grew up uh, Coleraine in, in the north coast uh, of Northern Ireland and basically they close for a weekend they close off the roads and these motorbikes screen round it getting up to 150 160 miles an hour and tragically he was killed during a practice session um, so I was reading his obituary and um, just at right at the end there was a little mention of his brother Joey and um, Joey, unfortunately and tragically for the family, also was killed in a in a in a road race. He was killed in Estonia uh, in the year 2000. And the, the obituary mentioned that when he was um, when his body was brought back, it was brought back to Dublin, and then was going to be driven north uh, for, for his uh, for his burial. Now, unfortunately, it was in July in 2000, and that's the marching season in in the north. And it just so happened to coincide with uh, the Drumcree disturbances. Uh, Drum Cree was uh, is, a, is a place near Porta Down. Um, the Orange Order at the time wanted to march down a particular street, uh, which was the traditional route. Uh, unfortunately, the the um, the local inhabitants of that street, the Garvaki Road, it's called, um, weren't from the nationalist community, and understandably weren't very keen on them marching down there. Um, the march was banned, but the the Orange Order kind of uh, basically camped camped out and, and, and lots of sympathisers came and joined them and it was a huge disturbance across the country. The police were involved, there were roadblocks set up and um, at the same time Joy Dunlop's body was being brought back to Dublin and then driven north. The problem was it couldn't get it couldn't get to the north, so many roadblocks and so much uh, disturbances that Robert had to actually make a plea to say can you let my brother's body come home and it just struck me that um, here was a sporting story um, a very small one, but one that just showed you how sport and politics mix. How just by coincidence, or just a coincidence of time, or or, or, or geography, um, the sport and and the politics of place come together. And I just thought, well, over the last forty years, during the troubles from the late sixties to ninety eight, when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, and beyond, and since then, um, I'm sure there are many troubles like that, or rather many stories like that. So that just seemed, just to see a little light bulb went off in my head. Um, the longer version, is obviously, is, is my own story as well, because um, I left Northern Ireland. I grew up uh, in there, born in 63. Um, I was six when the trouble started. And so I grew up to the 70s and 80s uh, in the province. I left in, in the early 80s to go to university. I was very keen to go. I, I, I just found nothing there that, 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 that appealed to me. I wanted to leave. Um, but the thing, one of the things that kept me connected other than family was sport. 
um, my you know my love of Northern Ireland as a football team, a soccer team. Uh, certain certain sporting individuals in the eighties: Byron Quick and the boxer, Dennis Taylor, Alex Higgins, both snooker players, things like that. So sport had always been um, where I felt most Northern Irish, I guess. Um, and I just thought there was something to explore in in both of those strands, really. Um, how sport and politics mixed for the sports men and women in the province, and how sport and politics mixed for me. So let's go back to Northern Ireland, and I'll ask you okay. to uh, to set the scene of your growing up here. Sure. So, so where did you come from? What did your family do? And I guess we should find out at the start which side were you on in the yeah. in the sectarian division. Sure. I, well, I was. I grew up in a town called Coleraine, as I mentioned, a predominantly Protestant town, as as um, as I was. Um, my dad had been in the army. I was actually born in Germany, in a British military hospital in 1963, and then uh, when he left the army, uh, we moved back to Northern Ireland. Um, Coleraine is, as I say, in the north coast. It's a it, at that time it would been a small town, 15,000, 20,000 people, I guess. Um, but I think one of the things to, that I, I try to get across in the book is that. Northern Ireland isn't quite the same place as you would maybe uh, think of it at, through the news reports from that time. Um, that vision of Northern Ireland, which is the barricades, the bombs, uh, the riots, all of that is true. Um, but quite often it was it was uh, limited to quite small geographical areas. So the town I grew up in um, would, was mostly peace, peaceful through all that time, mostly peaceful. There were a couple of uh, bombings, 1973 and in the early 90s. Um, the 73 bombings, I think six people were killed. 1990s just caused a lot of damage. But for the most ta- most part, it was, you know, relatively peaceful place. And um, it also wasn't as divided as, as Belfast would be. In Belfast, you'd have um, the Shanko and the Falls. One was Protestant, one was Catholic, and, and, and clearly marked uh, clearly marked their, their allegiances. In Korean, it was slightly more different than that. Yes, the red, white, and blue of the Union Jack was very much uh, in evidence. Um, at the same time, though, my best friends as a kid were Catholics. Um, Bernard and Michael Hunt, um, their father was, was overworking in, in, in Northern Ireland. He was from Yorkshire. Uh, he had a very strong Yorkshire accent, I still remember. Um, so it, my, my Northern Ireland was slightly different than the one. If, you were, if you'd grown up in the Shankill Falls, my, that was a different story to mine. Um, so my dad was a was a, a bricklayer by profession. Um, during the seventies, he was a member of the, the Territorial Army, which is a kind of um, volunteer kind of reserve force in, in, for the British Army. And then in the, the early eighties, he or late seventies rather, he joined the Ulster Defence Regiment. The Ulster Defence Regiment were a, a part-time organisation set up to support the British Army and uh, the the local police force, the Royal Ulster Constabulary at the time. Um, in, in just during those years in, in the 70s and 80s when, when the troubles were at their, were at their peak, really. Um, so he would go out maybe two, three times a, a week. He would um, go on patrol, uh, going out, setting up roadblocks, stopping cars, things like that. And he'd return early hours of the morning. And, and quite often as a teenager, I remember kind of waiting to hear him come back um, just just to, make sh- to be sure he was fine, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um and, I, and obviously, as I got older, as a teenager, um, I kind of was aware that being in the UDR was um, uh, was something that could make you a target. And every morning, I'd get up in the morning and see my dad out at his car looking underneath just to make sure there was no bombs being planted in the night. So um, 
it's difficult to kind of get across the fact that, that on one hand, my experience was very different than a, an experience that a kid in Belfast would have. But there were there were similarities, and there was still a, a sectarianism was abroad throughout Northern Ireland, and it still is, I'm afraid. So that was kind of my background, and, and um, I grew up uh, at the same time. I grew up not really aware of the troubles until I was well into my teens, I think. So let's bring sports into the picture. And, mm. and uh, to start, I should ask you to give something of an overview. Uh, and you did a bit already in talking about Union Jacks flying in, flying in your town. Uh, but yeah. to give something of an overview of the issues and the sides involved in the troubles for those who are less familiar with the history of, of Northern Ireland. And to do this, I want to pick up on a line in your book. Okay. And you write, I'll, I'll quote it, As always with sports in Ireland, both north and south, it's all about the symbols. It's about which flags are flying and what songs are being sung and who is singing them. So could you give us something, jumping off from that quote, something of an introduction to these symbols that the different sides used at, say, a football match and, and what they meant? Sure. Um, I think the easy thing to say or the easiest thing to say is that football, any sport, could be a kind of theater for the politics of the place. Um, it's as simple as that. Um, Football is a good, a good, good place to start because in a, in in a Northern Irish level, um, teams were either Catholic or Protestant. They would be, they would be a ground, a football ground would be in a particular part of the country, in a particular part of the city. Um, it would usually be predominantly either Protestant or Catholic, and therefore inevitably would have a Protestant or Catholic support. Now, therefore, when when a Catholic side met a Protestant side. Um, Sparks would fly. Um, songs would be sung, uh, and 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 uh, sometimes punches would be thrown. Things like that. Riots were were, were known, particularly in the seventies. Um, football and other sports as well provided a kind of amphitheater for the kind of wider sectarian energies that were going on in in, in the north at that time. Um, famously, in, in in Northern Ireland, Linfield, which is a, a team in Belfast, uh, prided themselves on not. Um, not having any Catholic players for, for years and years, well into the, the 1980s, that was the case. Um, 1990s, I think. Uh, so, so it, it, sport became there, therefore, a, a chance um, for fans to kind of basically show their allegiances uh, through the flags they, they blew and through the songs they sang. Uh, if you were uh, a Protestant. You'd be singing the Sash, which is a song about the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. And, uh, you know, Catholic clubs, there's Cliftonville in Belfast, for example, very famously, um, would be singing songs about what was going on in, in terms of the, the, the troubles. Um, there's a very famous and infamous uh, chant that uh, Cliftonville fans uh, sang uh, after the death of a, a Conservative uh, MP in, in, in Britain. Uh, in which they kind of lauded his 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 death effectively. So 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 sport became for some a, a way of actually uh, expressing their, expressing their 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 kind of position, as it were. Um, now that's really a, a, on a local level, on a bigger level. Um, if you say if you play for Northern Ireland, um, in a sense that's a political statement straight away. Um, Northern Ireland is also a contentious issue. There's there's a, a division in the north um, between uh, a Protestant unionist community who are very keen on the idea of Northern Ireland being part of Britain and a, a nationalist Catholic community who 
who many of whom would rather be part of a, an all Ireland, a, a bigger Ireland, a 32 county Ireland. So um, Catholics did play for Northern Ireland's football team. Um, increasingly, though, certainly in the 90s, that became a contentious issue. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of where we are. But, but the flags you fly and, and the symbols, the symbols that you kind of stand under, as it were, um, could mark you out. Uh, so, for example, if I'm trying to think of an example, someone like Wayne McCulloch, who's a boxer in in the 1990s world champion at one point, um, as a teenager, uh, he came from the Shankill in Belfast, the Protestant Shankill, um, and yet he, because of the way bo- boxing's arranged in Ireland, it's an all Irish, all Ireland sport. Some sports are, some sports aren't. Uh, kind of legacy of, of partition in the early 20s. Um, he he ended up uh, representing Ireland um, in the Olympics as a 17-year-old and was asked, in fact, to to carry the Irish flag. Now, that's an incredibly contentious thing for for a young man from from the heartland of you know Protestant Belfast to have to carry an Irish flag, the tricolour. Um, and it, it caused him some problems, I think, uh, afterwards, although he kind of plays that down a little, to be honest. Um, so, so so, sport was a way in which, um, inevitably, all these politics that were flying around at that time, they became absorbed, they became absorbed and became, in a way, sport was a way of expressing them as well, if that explains it. So one figure that you talk about right at the start of the book who, who transcended these divisions mm. was George Best. And yes. as you say, it's nearly impossible to write anything new about George Best, but you take a stab at it by uh, looking at him through the prism of his Northern Irishness. So what, yeah. what is the picture we get of Best when looking at him in this context? Well, Best is, is um, as you say, he's probably the most famous sportsman from, from the north of Ireland. Uh, he's still a hugely revered figure in, in the whole of Britain and, and, and across Europe. Um, Although he never won to a World Cup, he's still um, one of the most familiar uh, sporting football faces, I think. And he had the he had the the advantage of actually becoming a star mm-hmm. uh, in the 60s before the troubles really really took off. Um, so, in, in a sense, his his um, familiarity, his success was already established by 1969 when when uh, the troubles really began. Um, he he'd went to Manchester in, in England and uh, been a hugely successful figure, and in a way, kind of embodied the '60s in a way. He was he was the first kind of pop star footballer in, in British terms. So he he was already very well known and very well loved uh, for that reason. So even though he came from a Protestant background in in the heart of East Belfast, um, his father was an Orangeman. Uh, he came from a, a, a very typical Northern Irish. Background. Uh, he did. He, he had already transcended um, his background by the time the trouble started. Now, that's not to say that the trouble didn't catch up with him. And again, um, in 1971, for example, he was he was um, he was sent a death threat before a game uh, that he was playing on Saturday against uh, Newcastle United. And um, you know, that's the kind of thing that that you have to take seriously. I think. Uh, the tragedy is that far too many Northern Irish sportsmen and women were, were sent death threats in, in those years. But Best um, played the game, scored a goal in that game, um, and in the end decided that the, he, he comes out and says, "Well, it wasn't really a serious threat; it was just someone wanting to kind of make some make some uh, political leeway, I guess, make some political 
headway. Can't think of the word. Um, just just someone who wanted to to kind of make a name or make a make a headline, I guess. Um, but the fact is that that there were there were kids in West Belfast and in, in kind of Catholic Belfast who were just as excited by best as as kids in East Belfast. You know, um, Manchester United also has a kind of unique position in in the north in that it's supported by children and 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 and, and people from both sides of the divide. Uh, you know, whether you're orange or green, you could still be a red. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and so so best best was in a, a kind of different position than many who would follow after, because he was he was already a star. He was already hugely successful, the most famous Northern Irish person I would say at that time in the sixties, and he also represented, as I say, a kind of pop star uh, vision of, of of the North, which is not something we had very much over that time. Um, so his so 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 he as I say he kind of represented something different. Um, and it was enough enough to make him kind of transcend what was going on at home. Not totally, as I say, there was a death threat. There was his sister was shot outside a, a nightclub one time mm-hmm. um, because of her background, because she was a Protestant and, and identified as such. And he, there were er- erroneous support reports that Best actually um, contributed to the Reverend Ian Paisley's political party at one point mm-hmm. in the early seventies. So, you know, he wasn't totally above. Uh, what was what was happening in the province, but um, at the same time he lived in England. He was a star in England, mm-hmm. and um, the, the sheer ma- magnetism of the man, the sheer charisma, his 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 abilities, um, everyone was everyone was enthralled by that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no question he's 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 the the great Northern Irish sports figure. Um, you know there'll be others others since who've been world champions in, in various things, but best kind of stands apart. Um, Simply because of his talent, because of his his, his ability and his genius, and um, all of these things meant that that he was looked up to from from both communities. And uh, it was very significant when he he died in, in two thousand five. That uh, when he, when his his uh, funeral ceremony, which took place in Stormont, which is the kind of home of Northern Irish politics, really, the, the Parliament there, um, representatives of all sides came to that came to that funeral, including. Um, former IRA men, former UVF and UDA men. Um, it was kind of non-denominational, I guess, is mm-hmm. the way to say it. Yeah. So you noted, as you, as you said, that during Best's career, both both Catholic and Protestant kids followed followed Manchester United. Uh, you say, though, in your own case, your team was and still is Tottenham Spurs. Yeah, and Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah, and you mentioned a few other clubs that your friends supported, and all of them were in the English league. And I was, I was wondering, as I read this, did the rivalry of Celtic and Rangers, which has the, the Catholic Protestant division at its foundation, mm. uh, was it exported at all to, to Northern Ireland? It's an interesting one, that. Um, there's no question that Celtic and Rangers draw on big supports in, in, in Northern Ireland. Um, but I have to say, growing up, I didn't know any Celtic or Rangers fans. Mm. I think I knew one Celtic fan. Um, I remember a teacher went around the class and asked us all who we supported him, and one 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 boy said uh, Celtic. This was about the early seventies, mid seventies. The rest of us, most people supported Manchester United. Most others supported Liverpool, the other big successful team in the seventies. Some of us supported Leeds. I supported Spurs along with a couple of others because of my uncle and because of a friend of mine who kind of indoctrinated me, I suppose, in, in Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> 
but Celtic and Rangers didn't really um, didn't really register, and there, it's a very simple reason for that because when we were growing up, um, we didn't get Scottish football on the television. Mm, okay. So we would grow up watching English football. It, it, it was what was there every Saturday night. Um, Celtic and Rangers uh, do occupy though this kind of unique position in, in, in British football. I mean, um, if you go back to the 19th century, clubs were set up, football clubs were set up by social institutions, often by churches and things like that. So quite often they would have maybe a Catholic or a Protestant um, background. Um, but increasingly now, it would be very difficult um, for you to go to an English city and tell be able to say which club was Catholic, which club was Protestant. I mean, I, you might if you were kind of really interested in these things, but you know, I don't think too many people would know that Liverpool, for example, was set up by the Orange Order. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in, in, in Glasgow, where, where I am, um, that's still very much evident. One, Celtic is a, a club with a, a strong Irish tradition and an Irish Catholic tradition. Rangers has a, a strong Unionist uh, Protestant tradition. Um, and they did attract supporters from from the north. Tends to be from Belfast, it has to be said, and from the the council seats where sectarianism was really at its most uh, bitter, where, where where the Falls and Shankill kind of actually, if you look at a map of Belfast, the Falls and Shankill are very close, which is surprising, I think, for people from outside. They, they kind of run along parallel to each other, and yet these are two of the most familiar. Uh, names in, in, in the kind of troubles troubles geography, I guess. Um, so Celtic and Rangers had 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 some following there, but the rest of the country, no, not really. I have to say that I don't think that was the case. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, I think when well, when I was a kid, no one wore football shirts because no one could afford football shirts, and it wasn't really it wasn't really a commercial operation at that point. But certainly, since the Good Friday Agreement, you go home or I go home now. Um, I would begin. You would see a lot more Celtic and Rangers shirts out there because they're marks of identity. They, mm-hmm. they mark you out. If you're wearing a Celtic shirt, you're obviously from the nationalist community. If you're wearing a Rangers shirt, you're from the you know the Unionist Protestant community. Um, they become symbols in a way. In a way that they weren't when I was a kid. I think. Mm-hmm. Do they say? Would they have the same? Uh, uh provocative effect today as they would have you know if a, if a kid was wearing a celtic or rangers shirt back in back in your day uh it would have it would have been a, a clear statement uh is it read the same way today i think oh yes definitely, definitely. okay um, I, more so i would argue because as i say when i was a kid no one no one really wore football shirts but now they're, they're marketed and everyone wears them and, and you will go over and you'll see liverpool shirts manchester united shirts i'm sure you'll see a few American baseball and, and uh, uh, basketball shirts as well, but Rangers and Celtic shirts um, that they come with a message. Mm-hmm. They come and, and they're saying, you know, this is where I am and this is who you know who I'm from. So one athlete whose career corresponded with the worst period of the Troubles in the in the early seventies, uh, and who actually received threats was Mary Peters, who won the pentathlon yeah. at the nineteen seventy two Olympics. So could you tell us about her career and her experiences in Northern Ireland? Yes, Mary um, Mary Peters is, is uh, growing up, I suppose, as a kid, um, the two most familiar voices other than my parents on, on, uh, in the media would have been George Best and, and Mary Peters because they were these huge figures in, the, in Northern Ireland in the 70s, the two most successful um, sporting figures. One, you know, one of the most glamorous footballers uh, on the planet. The other, an Olympic gold medalist. I mean, how, how, how much higher can you get as a 
as an accolade in, in sport. Uh, and, and bizarrely, Mary is actually not Northern Irish, although she doesn't like to say that. She's from mm-hmm. Liverpool in, in England originally, but her, she moved over when she was quite young. And and, um, and, she, and she's always said that she fell in love with the place, that she loved she loves, uh, Northern Ireland, loved the people, and felt very at home there. So even even when her father, or I think her mother died quite when she was quite young, and her father moved away when she was still only a teenager, she decided to stay. And um, she 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 was a as you say a pentathlete. She kind of uh, did a lot of athletic training. Was a kind of okay athlete without ever being a great athlete in the sixties. She 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 represented uh, Britain in the Olympics and things like that. But you know she never really kind of imposed herself. Um, she was happy just to go along for the ride. And uh, it was only when she met a. a uh, a weightlifter called Buster McShane, who became her trainer, that suddenly she became aware of actually, I am quite good at this. I am actually, you know, I could achieve much more than than I than I have. And so in the early seventies, she became the athlete she was meant to be, and then culminating in seventy-two with winning a, a gold medal. Now that was in the Munich Olympics, um, tragically, just the day before the the kind of um, the Israeli athletes were were killed. Um, by Palestinian, uh, Palestinian, Palestinian, if I can say that. Um, so, so her her gold medal already had that kind of shadow over it. The real tragedy is that the day after she won the gold medal, the day after her greatest achievement in sport, um, the BBC, I think, in Belfast received a, a phone call in which a rather um, what's the word? Uh, they received a threat against her her life, basically saying that if she returned to Northern Ireland. She, she might be she might be attacked. So her greatest moment was suddenly tarnished by what must have been a, a terrible moment in her life. Um, however seriously you take these things, and I don't think you can take them lightly. Uh, a threat is a threat. Um, so she returned to to Belfast um, with detectives on the plane alongside her, and uh, she was very keen to go and show off her gold medal to to people of Belfast. Um, she wasn't even allowed to kind of. They'd lined the streets with pictures of her, um, so that she could go along and, and just message of celebration. They wouldn't. The detectives decided that that was too dangerous. They, they took her kind of circuitous route because they, they were worried about what might happen. Um, but in the end, she did get to the centre of Belfast and just got on a bus and went through all the people. There was thousands upon thousands of people gathered just to kind of celebrate and and, and that. So um, Mary Peter's story then is one that that. In a very crude way, the, the, the heights of sport and and the depressing lows are, are, are linked inextricably. Within you know 24 hours, she received a death threat of having won a, a gold medal. Um, so so in an emblematic way, in, she is one of these cases where sport gets overtaken by the politics. And the problem was that she she was British. Um, she 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 had represented Britain. Um, she was there with a Union Jack on her back, and for some. That was that was reason to hate her. So I want to ask you something specific uh, mm. in from your interview with Peters, and she talks about uh, you have this in the text. She talks about knowing people who were injured and killed yeah. in the decades of violence, and yet how people, including her, got on with their lives. And then, as you write, she reached out to you and touched your wrist and said, "You ran away, I stayed." <laughs> Now, now this is Dame Mary who said this, who's a, a sports legend in the UK. That's so right, yeah. how, did, how did that hit you? 
Um, well, it's true. It's true. I mean, uh, when I was 19, I left Northern Ireland to go to university, and I was very keen to go. It was uh, a year after the hunger strikes, which was kind of the, one of the biggest events and troubles. Um, as I explained already, my, my father was going out on patrol uh, two or three times a week, and um, I'd had enough of the place. I was very keen to go. Mm-hmm. So when she when she says that, I mean, the, the fact is, it's true. I did run away. And, um, you know, I, obviously I've gone back plenty of times. I've still got family in, in the north. But um, my life became settled in Scotland. I, I moved to Scotland. I never really moved away. My, my idea at that time was to, I don't know, go to America, go to London, some of that. I didn't get anywhere near those places. But, um, but I didn't live in the north anymore. And uh, in that sense, you know, you could argue that, that I did run away. That's, that's part of it. There's, there's lots of Northern Irish Protestants who would cross to the mainland, as we call it, um, to go to university. We never go back. It's quite a, it's, it's, it's quite a common theme uh, in many of our experiences. Um, others, others stayed. Uh, Mary Peters, you know, is a perfect example of someone who, who lived through the worst of the troubles in, in Belfast in the 70s when it was, I can't imagine what kind of a city it must have been to live in at that time when there were bombs going off at regular, regular events in the early 70s. It was a, quite shocking time really in terms of um, disturbances and, and riots and and mostly bombs, that's that's the terrible thing, the city was blown to bits on a regular basis um, so, but she stayed and she was she was very keen to stay and very keen to be seen to to, to say well, I represent what the, the good, goodness of this place is, uh, you know she, as I said, she fell in love with the place and, and she always said that that's what I stand for so did you reflect on that as you were as you were researching writing the book that uh, that in the sense that even though you're from neither Northern Ireland you've become an outsider? Did you feel yourself an outsider or or someone with the perspective of of someone who's from Northern Ireland? Well, that has changed over the years, Bruce. I think that's the simple the simple fact of it. When I left, as I say, I was very keen to go, and I kind of tried very hard to reinvent myself as Scottish. Mm-hmm. I think I did. I mean, I, you know, it's easy to say now, but I think I I liked the idea a lot. I liked the idea of not being uh, an Ulster Protestant, of not being from that part of the world in which, you know, the troubles were still carrying on. Um, I I very much liked the idea that that stuff didn't matter to me. I didn't find, I didn't place myself in 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 the politics of Northern Ireland. I couldn't find a place in the politics of Northern Ireland. I didn't like any of it. It was all poisonous as far as I was concerned. So Scotland represented something I could be different or some place I could be different. In. And I liked the idea of being Scottish. But um, as as time went by, you know, uh, something would happen in sport, yeah, as yeah. a good example. And uh, I'd suddenly be reminded that, oh, no, actually, I'm not Scottish. <laughs> yeah. I am Northern Irish. And, and so... I took it. I I left at a bad time, really, for for me trying to reinvent myself because uh, the the early eighties and mid eighties was a fantastic, successful time for sport in Northern Ireland. Um, we had a very successful football team that went to two World Cups, which is unheard of now. We had um, a number of world champions. I mentioned Joey Dunlop a little earlier. He was world champion, I think, three or four times in a row. Um, we had Barry McGuigan, perhaps the most famous boxer. Um, not strictly from the north, actually. He lived. He, he was. He grew up just slightly over the border. But we 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 adopted him, and we said he was one of us anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so so every time someone like uh, McGuigan would box, um, or Northern Ireland played in a, in a football game, or Alex Higgins or Dennis Taylor, the, the snooker players played, um, 
I would be reminded that, that, no, actually, do you know what? I am Northern Irish. I can't pretend that I'm not because I care more about this than I do care about Scotland playing mm-hmm. football or a Scottish player winning, you know, a Scottish boxer or whatever. Um, that was always a reminder of, of who I was and where I was from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sport, unfortunately, was a t- it was a tie I couldn't, I couldn't cut, as it were. Um, I, it just reminded me of, of, of my origins. Yeah, yeah, and that's this is something I, I find fascinating in the book, and and I find it gives it something of a more. Uh, uh, it's not simply a book about Northern Ireland. It's about uh, the experience of being a sports fan in, in a general sense, and and I've experienced this as someone who's migrated within the states. My home state mm. is Minnesota, and uh, uh, I can't I can't undo that that basic allegiance. And you describe yeah. a scene in, in your book, and I forget what event it was, but you're you're watching this event and you're alone, and and it was uh, you know watching Northern Ireland, and this yeah. this was your sense, as you say, I was trying to be Scottish, but then I realized in watching Northern Irish sport, I I wasn't. There was still this attachment. Very much so. Very much so. Um, you know, I I realized after a few years in Scotland that much as I liked the place I wasn't Scottish mm-hmm. that I, I you know I'd grown up in a different culture and that much as I liked the new culture I was in it wasn't the same mm-hmm. and uh, there were certain touch points reference points that were different and um, after a while I decided well no I'm not going to be Scottish I'm, I, I'm still Northern Irish just for some reason and sport was always as I say sport was always the, the, the kind of connecting bit, bit where the vehicle for reminding me of who I was and where I came from. Now, that was sometimes problematic, you know. Um, in the 90s, for example, um, no, sorry, in, in, in as recently as 2002, um, Celtic, a Celtic player called Neil Lennon uh, received a death threat because he played, he was selected mm-hmm. to captain the Northern Ireland football team. Now, that was problematic for me because um, did I want to be associated with a team that, that, that obviously was a target for sectarianism? That, that players could be signal, singled out and said, well, you're you're a Catholic and you're a Celtic player, therefore we don't want you to play for us or represent us. Well, I was quite happy that uh, Neil, ben, Neil Lennon represented Northern Ireland. He's one of the few players we had at the time who was anyway decent. Um, but, you know, when, when you have that situation, when you have a player who's been, you know, singled out and actually the victim of a death threat, um, do you want to be associated with that team? So that was, you know, there were times when that was hugely problematic for me, you know. Um, it, it, it kind of asks you a question about why are you a fan? What, what are you supporting? And um, sometimes the, the answers I came up with weren't particularly attractive. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's really at that, that level of where sport and, and, and national identity can emerge that, that was obviously problematic in Northern Ireland because, because of the politics of the place. And problematic for me because... Um, you know, did I want to be associated with with the team that were kind of harassing players because of the religion? Well, I certainly didn't, and 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 that, and yet at the same time, I, I still kept supporting them. I kept uh, I kept tuning in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to your your story uh, growing up in the time in the mm. troubles, and uh, your family did have direct contact with the violence of the troubles, and and you discuss in the chapter uh, on that episode that touched your family. How it came at the the same time in the same day as the the Northern Irish national team was 
having one of its greatest victories in, in probably its history against Spain in the 1982 World Cup. And you make some uh, quite interesting remarks in that chapter about how these two memories, the memory of the, of the football match and the re- memory of the violence that hit your family, uh, how these two memories play in your head. So can you talk about that, please? Yes, indeed. Um, Northern Ireland went to the World Cup in 1982, um, not expecting to do very much, but actually got through the group Mm-hmm. beating Spain the hosts on the way, which is an incredible event and certainly un- unexpected, I think. And I, I do remember very strongly, very vivid memories, I think they're memories, could be kind of um, me me kind of conjuring these things up from the past and, and, and wanting to believe their memories. But I, I have very vivid memories of, of sitting in, in my house watching the game that night, uh, it was June uh, 25th, 1982, um, when Northern Ireland scored a goal. So it was 1-0 victory they won. Uh, and I, I, I'm sure I jumped off my seat, and I'm sure I heard voices, you know, in, in each house up the street. There's a council estate, and you know, I can almost hear like a wave of noise, kind of rising and falling, um, just in, in tune with my own. Um, it was thrilling, just a thrilling evening at that moment when when sport just gives you everything you want, um, and uh, the, the strange thing is, as I say, it's a memory, and yet. A couple of years ago, when I was reading a, a, a little kind of privately published history of my father's Ulster Defence Regiment, um, I realised my dad couldn't have been there that night. He must have been out on patrol, because that was the night my dad got blown up. Um, this would have happened in the early hours of the morning, maybe three or four hours after I'd been jumping off my seat. Uh, his his Land Rover, uh, his patrol was out, and uh, a road bomb had been implanted and, and, and blown up. Left, leaving a huge crater in the road, but thankfully he he was fine. Um, I I first was aware of this the next morning uh, when he kind of limped around the house. He obviously was not in some pain, um, but he had been trying to kind of hide this from my mother and things like this. And uh, the, the curious thing, as I say, as you as you kind of alluded to there, was that these two memories had had kind of fractured in my head. Um, mm-hmm. It, it required, you know, uh, this book to tell me actually this happened at the same time because these, as you can understand, were huge, huge memories for me. The one, the sweetest kind of sporting memory I have, perhaps, and the other, this kind of hugely traumatic uh, event because this was, this was in many ways the kind of culmination of all my fears. All those mornings, getting up and looking out to see my father, looking under the car, and uh, you know, watching him turning the key in the ignition and. That sudden kind of shiver. Oh, is anything going to happen? Is everything okay? Um, this was the culmination. Of, this was the time in which something did happen. Um, so, so for whatever reason, in my head, I separated those two things, um, and um, I still can't quite work out why. I mean, I, the obvious thing is perhaps that that I just didn't want them one to sully the other. Mm-hmm. I didn't want one of my greatest memories to kind of be impacted by. by a particularly terrible one, um, and it's still, it's still kind of. I'm still not really sure how, I, how, how, how I did that and how I managed to kind of somehow separate these two things that, that came together so closely. But I did, and, and the reason I think is very simple: that, that I was so thrilled by that sporting success. I, as I say, I didn't want it to be to be kind of undermined by the the, the trauma that, that, that followed it. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so. 
so yeah, that's that's kind of that's where we were. my father was okay. He 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 was hurt, uh, he was injured, but um, thankfully it was no more than that. It was more. It was nothing uh, terribly serious. Goodness knows, there's so many stories in Northern Ireland during those those thirty forty years in which people you know went out and didn't come back. That that you know I can be very grateful for that. Um, yeah. So 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 yes, as you say, these two things happened so so tightly together, but. Um, for, for the most part of 20, 30 years, I managed to separate them in my yeah. head quite successfully. And yeah. uh, it was a bit of a shock, actually, when I realized I read this book and, and um, that day rings a bell. Why does that day ring a bell? <laughs> and, uh, and then I, 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 I was like, oh, my goodness, that happened. That happened on the same night in which I was cheering on my country in, in football. On the same night when I thought my dad was there cheering on with me, but he, he clearly wasn't. He was already oh, in control. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I found that fascinating, and, and here again, this is something that I think that can speak to uh, the universal experience of being a, a sports fan, and it prompted me to think, where is the place in my memory for recollections of sports and recollections of family? And I, I have to admit, after thinking about it, after reading that passage in your book, that the memories from my life as a sports fan come to the fore more often than memories of my childhood or experiences as a father. For instance, um, the memories of the, of the two difficult, difficult births of two of my children are really sealed away in my memory, mm. whereas the memory, memories, both good and bad, of being a sports fan, for instance, watching the, the football team I follow lose in the playoffs, this memory, it, it comes up weekly <laughs> i remember watching <laughs> that game so so that that was quite uh quite interesting and i think you know once again you're saying something uh, uh, uh more universal about how sports fans uh, you know thinking about it how we process that our experiences yeah i think sport sport is a, a an easy an easy kind of uh, memory in a way you know uh, for many people sport is yes you want your team to win Mm-hmm. They hate it when you lose, but in the end, there's not really anything at stake, yeah, yeah. is there? I mean, you know, yeah. in the in the grander scheme of things, of course, there's things at stake. We all we all invest in our football teams or our sports teams, whatever it might be. But but nothing really intrinsically is at stake. You will wake up the next morning and you'll kick the cat or whatever you might do. Um, the day will carry on and and, and uh, things will be fine. Uh, these other events, though, these these possibly life changing events, um, it's it's more difficult to kind of you know live with them and, and you're right you may may well be that we just seal them off or, yeah. or or just go back to them when we feel strong enough to to, to think about them um the, the problem with that though in, in, ter- in terms of northern ireland is of course for for many people um sport and and and, and politics were too linked but were linked in in the most the most obvious case in in kind of the gaelic sports uh, where people were killed simply because they were sports fans because they supported um, a Gaelic football team or a hurling team, um, and that's that's a question of of identity. They were identified with a particular side, and that side was the enemy, and they were therefore targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about football in in the seventies yeah. and eighties. And this was a rough time in Northern Ireland, and it was a rough time for football in Britain and Ireland and really throughout Europe. And and uh, you just mentioned mentioned violence of the troubles and. Mm. I was wondering how much were the hostilities among football supporters in Northern Ireland the product of the Troubles 
as opposed to how much were they part of this this larger wave of hooliganism in in European football in the seventies yeah. and eighties? Well, I think first and foremost they were a reflection of that hooliganism. I think that was people fans watching it on the TV in uh, English games where, where where there'd be riots and things and saying, oh, that looks fun. Let's let's have a bit of that. Now, where it differed was that, of course, the politics of Northern Ireland allowed an extra sectarian edge to it. So whereas in England, um, if Leeds were playing Manchester United and there was a riot, it was because they were Leeds and Man United fans. In Northern Ireland, if uh, Cliftonville were playing Linfield, you know, Catholic side against the Protestant side, yes, they were they were rival fans, but more than that, they were Catholics and Protestants, and uh, so therefore that 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 rivalry was supercharged, if you like, with this kind of sectarian poison. Um, and I don't I don't think you could say uh, the violence, the the hooliganism was any worse than it was anywhere else in Europe, um, but it, it it just had an extra nasty edge to it, I think. So one instance where the violence of the Troubles did have a direct impact on sports uh, actually involves horse racing. So mm. can you talk about that episode, please? Yeah, horse racing is one of those sports that, that managed to um, go through all those all the violence of those years and be remar- reasonably untouched and reasonably unmarked by, by what was going on in the, in the, in the wider community. Um, you'd have horse trainers in the north who would go down to meetings in the south across the border um, and vice versa there was no there was no partly because horse racing you're not representing a country or a community or a thing it's 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 about horses it's about individual jockeys and things like that so it was for the most part able to kind of transcend transcend the kind of the politics of time and place um, in one occasion though uh, perhaps the most famous kind of victim sporting victim of the troubles was a horse uh, Shergar. Shergar was this um, incredibly uh, successful horse, um, won the derby at a canter uh, and, and uh, owned by the Aga Khan. And uh, in the early, I think the early, no, 1980, 1983, that's right, in the early 80s it had been retired uh, to stud um, after a glorious career, after being you know, the great horse of that time. Um, and it, it was it went to study in in, in, in Southern Ireland in the Republic, um, a little bit out of Dublin, and on one night in, in 1983, um, the horse was kidnapped. Now, who kidnapped it has never really been established, but the the feeling is it was the, the IRA, and the feeling was that they, they kidnapped it uh, to make to demand a ransom of the Aga Khan. Um, just a way of making some money mm-hmm. uh, to, to car- carry on the kind of activities. Um, the horse disappeared. Um, it's never been seen since. It just totally disappeared. We don't know what happened to it. The feeling is that um, it was in stud at the time, um, that it was probably too too difficult to deal with if you weren't experienced with horses. Um, and the suggestion is that, that certainly uh, one, one source in, in the 1990s came back and said that it had been kidnapped by the IRA and the IRA had to kill it because it was just unmanageable. Um, but but Shergar, therefore, has kind of been this phantom, really, since um, every so often bones will be, will be dug up in, in, in a field in Ireland, um, usually near the border, and saying, oh, maybe this is Shergar, maybe this is what's, what's, what's left. But um, 
We don't know. We don't know. It's, it's not even clear that that um, the IRA did do it, although everyone, the, the suspicions are certainly there. Um, the, the tragedy in many ways is that the, the operation that, that followed the, the horse kidnap was pretty farcical and pretty inept by, by the Gardai. And, uh, you know, the other the other issue was that um, the Aga Khan actually didn't own the horse on his own anymore. Perhaps if he'd been the only voice uh, that the, the, the kidnappers were dealing with, perhaps an agreement could have been reached, but um, he was one of a syndicate by this time. The horse was owned by a syndicate, and there was a number of voices competing then, um, dealing with the, the, the demands that came in. And to be honest, it may well be the horse was dead already within a day or two of, of being kidnapped, who knows. Um, but Shergar is, 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 is the kind of the one event in which uh, horse racing was significantly impacted by the troubles, or so we think anyway. So turning ahead to the peace process in the late mm. uh, late 90s into yeah. the 2000s, um, you talk about how the peace process parallels the reemergence of football in Northern Ireland. So football went uh, went through a rough patch in the 1990s in Northern Ireland. Uh, but then in the 2000s, there was really a deliberate campaign to promote or revive football in Northern Ireland and to transcend sectarian divide yes. uh, in, in football. So could you talk about that, please? Of course, I think that's one of the good stories, one of the happy stories, or, or one of the great achievements in, in in sport in the north in the last 40 years. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that Neil Lennon, this, this player um, who, who joined Celtic and then became a target for death threats uh, in this was 2002, I believe that happened. Um, at that point, Northern Irish football, the, the international side, was pretty much in the dumps. It, they weren't, weren't a particularly good team. Um, no one was going to the games. Very few people were going to the games. Uh, it was it, the games were being held in a pretty decrepit stadium, uh, so so nothing was going really right for it. And then on top of this came this death threat, um, and on one of the most uh, experienced players was never played again for his country. You know he was taken out of it. So um, for for ten years before that, there'd been a lot increasingly sectarian um, support supporting Northern Ireland. Um, it, it culminated in the game in 1993 between the Republic and, and Northern Ireland, which was a, seen as a very vicious atmosphere at that night. Um, that may or may not be exaggerated. It may just be just football rivalry, but there was, certainly was a kind of sectarian age by, by many accounts. Um, and that kind of gathered over the next decade until this moment when, when Neil Lennon uh, received this death threat. So basically the image of Northern Irish football was in the toilet. I mean, it's as simple as that. It was uh, no one, no one supported it. The only people who supported it seemed seemed to the outside world to be bigots. They seemed to be Protestant bigots who had a thing against uh, Catholic. Didn't want any Catholic players playing for the team. Now Catholic players have always played for Northern Ireland. It's you know in that '82 World Cup, it was kind of reasonably evenly divided between Catholic players and Protestant players. Um, suddenly it was a, it was an issue what community you were from. In the past, uh, it hadn't been because, frankly, we didn't have enough good players to, to make that to make that the division. Um, suddenly, in Lennon's case, it, w- it was an issue, and at that point, certainly in my own experience, I was just disgusted and for a bit turned off and tuned out, as it were. But other other people, uh, fans on the ground in Belfast and in Northern Ireland, 
decided this was the point in which they said, oh, you know what, we've had enough of this. We've had enough of this. Um, we're going to do something about it. And um, a number of them, including people like Jim Rainey and Stuart McAfee, decided that they were actually going to try and effectively um, undermine the sectarianism that was going on. So they set up an organisation called Football for All, um, backed by the Irish Football Association, and uh, they would go into the they would go into the games. Um, they would block book tickets, um, and when sectarian songs began to be sung, they would drown them out. They would uh, get a megaphone and shout louder. Um, they would sing their own songs. They made up their own songs that were, um, you know, just kind of silly little ditties that about the players or about the manager or whatever. And and they they kind of it's an act of kind of bullying in a way. They kind of bullied the the the, the bigots out, out to be quiet. They just by make, making more noise. Um, that sounds a really simple thing, doesn't it? But it actually was incredibly effective. And so in 2002, Northern Irish, Northern Ireland's image as a as a country was just as I say in the toilet. Within four years, the Northern Ireland fans were being presented as the best fans in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in just before the World Cup. Now that's an incredible change around. And uh, Jim Rainey, who's one of the kind of leading figures of that, he he likes to show two pictures. One is a picture of. Uh, Northern Ireland fans in the in the 1990s and 2000s, beginning of the 2000s, um, all dressed up in red, white, and blue with the Union Jacks and and all those things that that symbolise Protestant Northern Ireland. Um, by 2006, you, you went to a match at Windsor Park, you'd be surrounded by a sea of green. Everyone was wearing green. Now, green was a colour that for Protestant uh, the Protestant community was a Catholic colour. It was an Irish colour. It was a nationalist colour. And um, suddenly everyone was on board and wearing. The green shirt of, of of Northern Ireland. So that that was an amazing, I think, still really amazing, amazing underrecognised achievement. I think. I mean, they're they are still doing that. They're still going out there and and singing their songs and and uh, signing people up and and having forums on the website and things like this. Active, active, and kind of encouraging that kind of non-sectarian approach. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not getting any easier for them. There's still there's still people who would who would prefer to be able to sing. Um, sectarian songs, that's always going to be there that's, that's an ongoing fight for them but the fact that they've managed to do it um, so long and so well I think it's a, a huge achievement Yeah, I love that slogan We're not Brazil. I see you can get t-shirts <laughs> we can, We're not, yeah. I, I want to get one of those t-shirts <laughs> we're not, Unfortunately we're definitely not Brazil that's one of the, that's one of the great tragedies uh, of my life I think I would love us to be Brazil but no uh, we're Northern Ireland which is a, a rather different thing Well let me ask you that with uh, um, so Northern Ireland, for, for American listeners, the population of Northern Ireland is about the same as the state of Nebraska. So so a pretty small population. Yeah. And yet you had, in the 60s and 70s, one of the, the top footballers in the world, the pentathlon gold medal winner. Uh, you've talked about world boxing champions. You've had numerous other footballers playing for, for clubs in England. How is it that, that a population that size, and looking back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, a province torn by violence, uh, the economy is in terrible shape. How did Northern Ireland produce these athletes? It's a very good question. It's a very interesting question. And I'm not sure I have an answer for you. Um, what I could say, though, is that um, one, of, one of the, I think, the most interesting, one of the most interesting 
interesting interviews I did for the book was an interview with a rugby player called Willie John McBride, a huge figure in Northern Ireland. Uh, he played for Ulster, he played for Ireland, Captain Ireland, um, was himself tragically, uh, uh, you know, targeted. He received, he, he received threats. But um, one of the big figures in, in, in British sporting history in, in the 70s. And, and, he's, and I asked him at one point, um, well, you know, he was a bank manager in Belfast at the worst the worst time. He was there in the early 70s when Belfast was being blown to bits on a regular basis. He, he tells incredible surreal images of, of doors, you know, daggered through other doors that have been blown off the hinges and just sent flying. And, and uh, he, his most amazing thing was he was sent, he was running for one day for, just from a bomb, from a, a bomb. And he said when it went up, it looked as if the whole city kind of moved. It felt like the whole city moved underneath him. And he says, he says, it couldn't have happened, but it looked as if all the windows came out of the buildings and they went back in again. Mm-hmm. Just in the, in the, it, um, so he, he, he really saw Belfast at its worst and Northern Ireland at its worst. And yet, um, when I asked him, well, God, in the middle of that, why are you still playing rugby? Why are you still turning out? Uh, um, and, and it just totally flummoxed me. He said, well, why, why not? Why, why would I not? Why would I not play the thing that I love? You know, and I think, I think, that that um, why any country provide you know produces uh, athletes uh, that that rise to the, the the top of the heap is you know th- there may well be uh, reasons for it but just sport was one thing that 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 carried on through all those years that allowed people to be themselves that that what that you not all the time some of the time it was impossible to ignore but some of the time you you could not be a Protestant or a Catholic you could be a sportsman. You could be a rugby player. You could be a boxer. You could be, you know, a, a jockey. Whatever it might be, you might own a horse. Whatever. You could be something that wasn't marked by the divisions of the place. And I wonder if, 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 if that provided a kind of psychological bolt hole. But certainly, I think for me it did. I think, that, I think that's fair to say that that's how I feel about it now. Um, now that doesn't really explain why all these people, all these um, incredible sportsmen, uh, emerged from that from this called small parcel of land and they're still emerging we we this is i, I say in the book that 1985 is the greatest year for for northern Irish sport because of byron glicken because of dennis taylor because of a number of things it's possible to argue that 2011 is in fact mm-hmm. just as great a year we have in terms of we've taken over golf haven't we we, we, we are the, <laughs> the, the leading nation in the world uh, we've got uh, rory mcelroy winning the u.s open we've darren clark winning the the open and of course the la- before uh, rory won the open we had uh graham Adol winning the US Open as well. So we've had two US Open winners and a British Open winner within the space of two years. Uh, it's an incredible achievement. And I always say that uh, Northern Ireland won the Ryder Cup last time around because Madol and uh, McElroy were key to that. Um, so it goes on, it goes on. And, and who knows what the explanation is for, for why that would happen. But I, I, I wonder if it, 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 it may be that there's sport was, was an escape for a lot of people and... and yeah. And so carried on through all those years. So we're almost out of time. I will ask about, you mentioned Rory McIlroy, and you, you mm. talk about him briefly at the end of the book, and, and he yeah. provides something of a of a close. So how does Rory McIlroy and these golfers uh, fit into the, the history of sport in Northern Ireland? Well, I, want, I, I, I would like to think, and, and maybe this is way too early to say this, but I would love to think that Rory McIlroy is perhaps the first post-troubles sportsman. And that, that would be... That would be the ideal, wouldn't it? Um, that we've moved to a situation where um, sporting stories in the north aren't 
impacted by the politics of place. Now that's been going on, as I said, Lenin's tragically Neil Lenin is still receiving threats to this day. This year has been he's received two or three threats. So, you know, the troubles may have stopped, you could argue in nineteen ninety eight, but the kind of poison carries on. But McElroy, um, if we're lucky, represents a kind of post troubles figure. Um it was very interesting uh, in Britain, sitting here in Scotland, watching coverage of the US Open. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was this Northern Irish, this, this young man from Northern Ireland, um, you know, topping the world, uh, managing to kind of beat everyone uh, out of sight and, do, and doing an amazingly kind of uh, controlled and, and, and uh, brilliant way because he had a fantastic four rounds in the, in, in the US Open this year um, and yet no one ever mentioned the troubles mm-hmm. uh, through that time now if 10, 15, 20 years ago that I think that would have been impossible for um, any commentator not to mention you know what was going on in, in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland uh, you know I, you know Barry McGuigan the boxer um, had to fight under a white flag he had to kind of state that I'm that, that he was uh, you know neutral in some way um, you know he couldn't escape in that sense. He had to actually make a statement about it, um, just in the way he boxed, or in the flags he flew under, or he boxed under. Um, McElroy isn't in the same position. He's 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 in a position where he hopefully will will not be impacted by the troubles. This is the first time maybe a, there's a sporting story that isn't uh, hit by the politics of place. Let's. I'd, I would love to think so anyway. So you start with Best and end with McElroy. These two—it's not too bad, is it? Yeah, two, two transcendent <laughs> figures. Yeah, yeah. As yeah, you were speaking, I was—I cool. was thinking how uh, appropriate that is that you have these two figures. Um, I'll ask you to finish up. Do you, are, so this was your first book. Are you working on yeah. a second book? No, I'm enjoying doing nothing. <laughs> I'm uh, no, I, I don't know. I, it was—it was a long haul. It, it took. I, I started it, I think, in early 2009, mm-hmm. and it went through a couple of rewrites and. Uh, the book was it's, it's quite different than my first the first draft uh, the first draft was much more um, it's much more chronological than it goes from from uh, the late 60s to, to now before it was more sports each chapter was a different sport mm-hmm. and I kind of carried through so it's, it's changed quite a bit so it was a bit of work there's a bit of work involved and I have a day job yeah, yeah. so um, there are there are other things that I might be interested in writing but I'm not sure I certainly haven't got there yet well, let me ask you this about working on the book. So, as you said at the start of the interview, uh, your your day job includes interviewing uh, actors, uh, film stars, you know, people in in popular culture. Uh, so, so that's just part of your job. Was there a different kind of? Did you have uh, something of a thrill in getting the chance to interview sports figures that you had grown up grown up watching? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that because I, I don't, I don't. It, when I meet someone, I'm, I'm never starstruck. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's my job. I have to do it, and and it doesn't help if I'm starstruck. I have to say though, when I met Jerry Armstrong, Jerry Armstrong yeah, scored yeah. the goal against Spain in 1982, which is my my favourite sporting moment. I mean, it is the moment that I felt most alive as a sports fan. Um, I did get a bit of a thrill the fact that I'm sitting down opposite the, the guy who scored. 
the goal that that I, that I thrilled me more than almost any other goal, even though it was a pretty rubbish goal. It was, there's nothing spectacular <laughs> about it. You couldn't say it was the, goal, a, the goalie's mistake. Allowed, yeah, it was the yeah. goalie's mistake, and and uh, there was no great artistry to it. It wasn't wasn't very Georgie best. There was no kind of beating 15 men and then and, and then slotting it home in some spectacular fashion. It was a very nondescript goal, but it, it thrilled me more than any other. And uh, sitting down and meeting him in 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 a cafe in Hollywood, which is just a few miles outside Belfast, was definitely a big thrill. Definitely a big thrill. And, uh, you know, I, I had to kind of uh, rein myself in and, and not gush at that point, I have to say. Um, other than that, no, I don't think, I mean, there, I, I met a lot of people um, I had always admired and, and, and who were heroes, if you like, because sport, sport does throw up heroes, doesn't it? Um, I was reasonably able to keep myself in control, but uh, meeting Jerry was the one moment which I think I was I was in danger of losing it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot, Teddy. This was uh, I really enjoyed this book, and as I said, uh, um, you know, it has the troubles in the title, uh, but it is a book that that speaks more broadly about the experience of of being a sports fan, and and you know, for myself, someone who grew up in the United States, far removed from. Uh, you know, worrying about his father's safety when he went off to work. It's, it's, you know, it really spoke to me in terms of my experience as a sports fan. So thank you very much for being on the program. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an interview with Teddy Jameson about his book, Whose Side Are You On? Sport, the Troubles, and Me, published in 2011 by Yellow Jersey Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from philosophy and religion to pop music and public policy. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to New Books and Sports at the iTunes Store and link to our page on Facebook, where you can give us feedback, suggest new books, and find links to quality, shorter sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.